Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 85, The Principalities Wither. Thanks so much to Tal Ben-Harim for his generous donation. And for everyone else, remember, you can always make a one-time PayPal donation or pledge via Patreon on the website. Check out the website also as well for maps, you know, timelines, all that kind of stuff for every one of these episodes. I know it's hard to really keep track of exactly who's going where and what's happening and what order and stuff. So all that's on the website. And if you want to pledge $3 per episode, you can get access to all of the episode transcripts. So you can just read right along and see where I improvise and exactly where I read what's written down. So consider pledging if you can. And if not, keep listening, share us, whatever you can do to help. So last time, we saw the Ottomans finally conquer Cyprus, completing their domination of the entire eastern Mediterranean with the sole exception of Crete along with their defeat of the Venetians in the Fourth Ottoman-Venetian War. Still, the Ottomans did manage to have a major naval loss at the Battle of Lepanto, but they recovered quickly and were able to extend their control all over North Africa and install even more pliant rulers in Wallachia and Moldavia. Now, the young Sultan Murad III turns his attention towards the Safavids, looking to retake territories won by his grandfather, Suleiman the Magnificent, specifically the areas around Azerbaijan and the Caucasus. Again, you can find a map on the website. So to recap, there were several elements which really caused this war. First was the chaos which followed the death of the Safavid Shah two years previously. Next, the fact that the Uzbeks had offered a two-front war where both the Ottomans and the Uzbeks would attack the Safavids from either end. And lastly, Sultan Murad III had the backing of both his Grand Vizier and the Ottoman clergy. So, with all these reasons, war was on. The Ottoman army crossed into Georgia, a Safavid vassal state whose ruler was related to the Safavid royal family, on August the 7th, 1578. The Georgians weren't able to mount a substantial resistance to the Ottoman force on their own, but soon they were reinforced by a Persian army. The two forces met near the small fort of Childer in Anatolia two days later on August 9th. Now, we don't have many details, but it seems that the Georgian-Persian army was just about to surround the Ottomans, but the Ottomans ultimately came back and managed to defeat them. The Persians and the Georgians lost 8 to 10,000 soldiers out of their 32,000-man army, so a substantial loss, but not a crippling one. Just 15 days later, the Georgian capital of Tbilisi fell to the Ottomans. The Georgian kingdom of Kakheti agreed to become a vassal and pay tribute to the Ottomans. The Ottoman army then turned north to cross the Caucasus Mountains and campaign in Dagestan, which is now in southern Russia, uh, and along the Caspian Sea. Again, you can see a map on the website. 
But soon, the campaigning season was over, and the Ottoman army returned to their territory in eastern Anatolia to wait out the winter. In their absence, several uprisings began against the Ottomans. To help this along, the Safavids released an imprisoned Georgian king before ultimately installing their own candidate on the Georgian throne, effectively undoing the Ottoman gains of the first year of the war. But before those losses really came to pass, an army of Ottoman-allied Crimean Tatars attacked deep into Armenia and Azerbaijan during 1579. But their Khan was captured and later executed. So, well, it didn't work out so well in the end. Meanwhile, unrest by Kyrgyz and Kazakh tribes deep in Central Asia led the Uzbeks to have to abandon their campaign against the Safavids. Then, to make matters worse, in October, the Ottoman Grand Vizier was assassinated, possibly by a Janissary working for the Sultan's wife, who was sort of in a power struggle against that particular Grand Vizier, but it's not entirely clear who had him killed. This capped off a year of dramatic reversals for the Ottomans after their substantial gains in 1578. And so, well, two years in, the Ottomans were sort of back at square one. Now, during these years, Moldavia was also experiencing its very own chaos. The unpopular Ottoman puppet Peter the Lame was briefly overthrown by a Cossack commander in 1577. However, the Ottomans, and their Wallachian vassal, and even the king of Poland, Stefan Bathory, were all against him. And so, well, he didn't really stand much of a chance, and the Cossack was captured and executed in Lviv. He'd only managed to stay on the throne about two months. However, just over a year later in 1579, yet another challenge came from the illegitimate son of Petru Radish, a man named Johann V, the Saxon. Once Johann had been told who his father was, and that he was a member of the royal family, he traveled to Constantinople and married the descendant of a Byzantine imperial family before preparing to take the throne from Peter the Lame. To do this, he borrowed money from a former Venetian dragoman and went back and successfully overthrew Peter. Now, during his three years in power, Yuan taxed the country heavily and amassed a personal fortune. However, once he learned that there was an Ottoman plan to depose him, he attempted to flee with a massive amount of money into Transylvania. He was captured along the way and, like his Cossack predecessor, was executed in Lviv. Thus, Peter the Lame again returned to the throne for a third time in 1582. Now, things have been quiet in the Safavid War during those years. In fact, until 1582, when the Ottomans sent another army east, not much of anything happened after those reversals. It wasn't until the spring of 1538 that this Ottoman army was finally challenged by a serious Safavid force, around 50,000 soldiers. When the two armies met, the Persians won the first engagement. But then they met again, and this time, the fighting lasted for three days, with the final two days being inconclusive, and then the Ottomans pulled out a decisive victory on the last day of combat. The Ottomans were now once again in firm control of Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Dagestan. The Safavid response to the loss was internal power struggles and assassinations. 
But the war returned to a sort of quiet, uh, cold state in the meantime. It wasn't over yet, but things quieted down. And remember, the Ottomans were still not quite at peace with the Habsburgs, and so there were still ongoing raids on that border. In fact, in 1584, a small group of Croatian soldiers ambushed an Ottoman army of around 10,000 and soundly defeated them, showing that the Croatians could increasingly hold their own against the Ottoman raiding parties, which had been attacking their territory indiscriminately for nearly a century. But while Croatia's strength was growing, upheaval was coming to Wallachia. Menea Turkitul had implemented a major tax hike, and when, which really pressured peasants and forced many to flee to Transylvania in search of respite. The boyars sent a petition to the sultan asking for a different ruler before ultimately forcing Menea into exile. Interestingly, he actually went to Ottoman-controlled Tripoli, of all places. A man related to the royal family named Petru Cercel became the new voivoda of Wallachia. Unfortunately for the boyars, Petru had a major personal debt and so immediately increased taxes to pay it, despite the fact that he was effectively put in charge because his predecessor had been, well, a little harsh with the high taxes. Again, oddly similar to what happened in Moldavia, by 1585 Petru knew the writing was on the wall and attempted to flee with his newly accumulated wealth to Transylvania. Again, he was captured on the orders of the Polish king and imprisoned. With this, Menea paid an immense sum of money to the Ottomans in order to be allowed to return to power, then passing the burden of paying off this newly acquired debt onto his poor subjects, resulting in yet higher taxes. The same year Menea returned to power, 1585, the Ottomans actually did sign a peace treaty with the Habsburgs, ending what small fighting had been dragging on in the Mediterranean and little skirmishes on the border. This year even saw a discussion of an English-Ottoman alliance between Murad III and Elizabeth I because, well, there was a war with Spain which began that year and England was looking for potential allies. The queen wrote the sultan that she believed that Islam and Protestantism had, quote, much more in common than either did with Roman Catholicism, as both rejected the worship of idols, end quote. Despite these alleged similarities, the alliance never quite materialized. Also in 1585, the Ottoman-Safavid War was getting hot again. The Ottomans took Tabriz and several other provinces along the Safavid border before pushing all the way to Baghdad. Also that same year, the Uzbeks finished dealing with the Kyrgyz and Kazakh tribes and were thus able to resume their own attacks on the Safavid flank. Well, the result being, of course, that things were not looking very good for the Safavids at this point. And during these final years, Petru of Wallachia also managed to escape prison and get all the way to Rome and gain the Pope's protection. However, he then traveled to Constantinople to attempt to get Ottoman backing to regain the throne of Wallachia. But his rival, Menea, spent more money than he did uh, and ultimately paid the Ottomans to have Petru killed, which they did in uh, 1590. And that same year, the Ottoman-Safavid War finally came to an end with the Treaty of Constantinople. The Shah needed to deal with the Uzbeks and therefore was willing to accept pretty poor terms with the Ottomans in order to get peace. 
Thus, the Sultan was able to keep nearly all the territory his armies had taken. This meant the southern Caucasus, Azerbaijan, and territories along the long frontier with Iraq all became Ottoman. Georgia and the territories along the Caspian north of the Caucasus, i.e. Dagestan, as well as some territories along the Persian Gulf became vassal states. You can see a map showing all these Ottoman territories on the website. There's a link in the episode description. And for now, the war was a tremendous success for the Ottomans. The Safavids were now busy fighting the Uzbeks, but we have to note, they were bitterly angry at the result of this war and vowed to regain these territories. But that conflict will be for another day. That next year in Moldavia, this cycle continued as Peter the Lame died of tuberculosis or stepped down because he was unable to pay the Ottomans and we're not quite sure, but the race to succeed him took place in the Ottoman court. In essence, the throne this time was actually going to basically go to the highest bidder and what was fast becoming a trend likely related to the sort of weakness of Murad III, the strength of the viziers and members of his court, and who all stood to gain from those bribes. And a little later in the episode, I'll actually talk about a little bit deeper of what's going on and why these high Ottoman officials are suddenly demanding money in order to appoint the rulers of the principalities. In fact, Historians do kind of point to this period as being one of increasing cultural and political stagnation in both Wallachia and Moldavia, as ever-increasing Ottoman demands for money turn these states stagnant. But in this specific case, a man named Aaron of hotly debated origins, possibly Jewish, maybe related to the Moldavian royal family, it's murky, Aaron borrowed an immense sum of money and paid it to the officials of the Ottoman court in order to be appointed the new ruler of Moldavia. He also promised an enormous amount of tax revenue to the Sultan, so it was no wonder he had everyone's support. This worked, and Aaron became the new Voivoda of Moldavia in 1591. He immediately set about brutalizing the population in order to extract enough taxes to pay the Sultan as well as his own creditors. It wasn't before long that he gained the title the Tyrant. Also, unsurprisingly, he soon faced rebellions, which he brutally put down, confiscating the estates of the boyars who were involved. Now, Murad was unhappy with all this chaos in Moldavia, as much as he wanted the tax revenue, and so he considered actually ending its vassal status and absorbing the state directly into the Ottoman Empire. Still, this was ultimately decided against but the Ottomans did remove Aaron less than a year after his rule began. He was replaced by his nephew, who was known as Alexandru V, the wrongdoer, or the bad, which should give you some indication about how his reign is going to go. He made many of the same mistakes his uncle did and lasted just a year before being carted off to Constantinople and eventually executed. Now, at this point, Aaron returned, and upon his return, his reign of terror returned with him, as he got revenge on everyone who had turned on him in his moment of need, confiscating even more Boyar estates. But at this point, Aaron also saw that his vassal status with the Ottomans wasn't going to do so well, and so he began to discuss the possibility of organizing a new holy league with the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire to actually fight the Ottomans. During those same years, from 1591, Menea Turkitul, 
the ruler of uh, Wallachia, was actually removed from the throne for unknown reasons and replaced by a man named Stefan Surdul, who ruled for just about a year. Now, Menea and his eldest son actually converted to Islam in an attempt to be placed back on the throne, but instead they were kind of decided they would rule Nicopolis, which you'll remember is in Bulgaria on the Danube, instead. The Ottomans knew that Menea was exceptionally unpopular in Wallachia, and they didn't really want to risk putting him back on the throne there. Soon, a man named Michael actually managed to pay his way onto the Wallachian throne. Again, very similar to what was happening in Moldavia. The throne simply went to the highest bidder. Also in 1591, the situation at the Croatian border was escalating. An Ottoman vizier based in Bosnia invaded Croatia and was pushed back after four days of heavy fighting. Now, it appears the vizier was doing this against official Ottoman policy, again pointing to the weakness of Murad III's reign. In 1592, despite all this, the Ottomans actually captured Bihać, a major point on the border. Soon the Ottomans won another victory against the Croatians at Brest, before eventually laying siege to Sisak, but ultimately retreating. Now, the Austrian Emperor Rudolf II was getting much more serious about these events. He could see that the situation on the Croatian border was escalating quickly, and that, well, the peace treaty he had recently signed with the Ottomans didn't seem to mean very much. In June, an army of twelve to 16,000 Ottoman soldiers from around Bosnia invaded to make another attack on the fortress of Sisak. Several thousand Austrian and Croatian soldiers came to attack the Ottoman force. The Ottomans were trapped between the fortress, the Habsburg army, and two rivers. As they were pushed back, they began to flee across the river, leading to around half the Ottoman force being killed or drowned. Christian Europe celebrated the victory while Murad vowed revenge, as one of his nephews had actually been killed in the fighting. As a result, the Sultan soon declared war, beginning what is referred to as the Long Turkish War between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans. Now, despite the fact that this battle began the war, the Battle of Sisak is actually widely considered to mark the end of the hundred-year Croatian-Ottoman War, uh, as it really marked the end of the kind of regular raiding of Croatia by the Ottomans, despite the fact that no war was kind of broadly declared during this hundred years. So despite the fact that we're now in a full-blown war between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans, at least this really signals the end of these sort of irregular raids for Croatia. In 1594, the first full year of this new war, well, we're going to talk about that. But before we kind of get into just what happens in the Long Turkish War, I want to take a step back and understand some context for what's about to happen. I need to give you an idea of what's really going on in the Ottoman Empire in this period because it influences everything I've been talking about in this episode and a lot of things going forward. Now, remember how I ha mentioned in the last episode about the Battle of Ponto, that there was m a massive importation of silver from the Spanish colonies in the New World, which caused inflation, which led to a lot of economic dysfunction in Western Europe. Well, it took a few decades, but by now that kind of inflationary silver has moved its way across Europe into the Ottoman realm and is now affecting the Ottoman Empire as well. Once the Ottoman currency was devalued by this influx of silver, state officials began turning to bribery, abusive tax collection, 
and the using of the property of the people they governed, basically abusing their offices. This, this is kind of this period of abuses that's often cited as part of Ottoman rule. So, you know, we often characterize Ottoman rule as being, you know, people are badly mismanaging, uh, the Ottoman officials are really abusing their power. This is when that really starts. Up until now, the Ottoman Empire was a pretty tightly run ship, I'd say, compared to comparatively looking compared to similar European powers. But the fact that the regular incomes of these state officials weren't really worth very much anymore, they thought, okay, now we need to do some other things in order to supplement the paltry amount of money we're getting. And this didn't just extend to these state officials. Janissaries also began to rebel as they did in Constantinople in 1593. They demanded new campaigns and new conquests so they could earn money from pillaging because, like those state officials, the Janissary salaries were now worth very little. And so, where are they going to get money if not by, you know, engaging in new conquests and pillaging and plundering wherever they went? All of this really led to cycles where local populations were severely overtaxed and abused by the officials governing them, while higher governmental officials become more and more concerned with enriching themselves by selling offices rather than running the empire competently. All the while, as mentioned, Murad III wasn't that interested in being an active ruler of the empire. He never went on campaign and largely left governing and military campaigns to his grand viziers. Now, there were several results from all of this. First, obviously, was an immense amount of civil unrest. No surprise that being overtaxed and abused by Ottoman officials made the everyday people of the empire quite angry. More specifically, in the regions bordering Transylvania, many people actually began to migrate there in search of some respite from these abuses, because while Transylvania was an Ottoman vassal, uh, it was ruled by Stefan Bathory, who was also the king of Poland, and so he didn't face those same kind of pressures, economic pressures, leading him to overtax the population. So Transylvania was a more or less safer place to be. Also, some Christian subjects began to form small, irregular bands aimed at stealing from the wealthy, mostly Ottoman officials. Now, these men were called Hajduks, and they certainly had a bit of a Robin Hood-esque character to them, but to be clear, they varied tremendously. Some were rightly revered as heroes and fought for local populations. Others were basically highway robbers who didn't have an allegiance to much of anything. It's a typical theme where, you know, freedom fighters can go from being noble fighters to robbers and thugs, depending on who they are and what the circumstances are. And Hajduks really had that full range. So taking all these elements together, the Ottoman loss to the Croatians and Austrians at the Battle of Sisak and the beginning of a formal war between the Austrian Habsburgs and the Ottomans, along with all this unrest in the Ottoman Empire itself, it's no surprise that Christians in the border territories saw this as the perfect moment to rise up against the Ottomans. And that's precisely what happened in 1594. Some Hajduks along the Hungarian and Transylvanian border began slowly gaining strength in the winter of 1593-94, to 94, compelling peasants to join them, some by force, some willingly. By March, they were a powerful group and moved into Transylvania after sacking some towns. There, 
along with the local clergy, an uprising was proclaimed in the Banat, which is a region kind of compromising parts of Transylvania and Serbia. Again, there's a map to see where that is on the website. Now, the uprising went pretty well initially. They managed to take some strongholds, attack Ottoman military shipments along the Danube, and generally fend off anyone who tried to stop them. The rebels asked the prince of Transylvania, Sigismund Bathory, to join them and be declared king of Serbia, but he declined and remained a loyal Ottoman vassal. By May, with more Ottoman fortresses falling, the soldiers stationed in nearby Belgrade and Smederovo, remember Smederovo was that purpose-built Serbian capital before it fell to the Ottomans, well, the Ottoman forces garrisoned there got wind of how big this uh, uprising was and sprung into action. Around a thousand cavalry were sent to deal with these rebels, but the results of the battle which ensued are not entirely clear, but what's important is that the rebellion went on. These rebels fought on doing even more damage, and yet the Ottomans still didn't take them that seriously. But when another detachment was sent to deal with them and it too was defeated, the Ottomans approached the situation took a turn and they started to, well, get serious. Knowing a more serious Ottoman response was coming, the rebels again asked for help from both Transylvania and Austria. While some in Transylvania did support them, its prince still did not. The Austrians sent two military detachments to help, but one was attacked and destroyed by Crimean Tatars before it could reach them. In fact, right at this moment, a substantial number of Tatars arrived and forced the Austrians to abandon the sieges of several Hungarian fortresses, which they had started at the beginning of the war. Meaning that, with the Tatar arrival, the rebels began to be truly isolated from any possible aid coming from the Habsburgs. And that's where I want to leave it today. The rebels leading the Banat uprising have so far enjoyed some real success, but with the Austrians pushed back and Transylvania holding back on offering full support, the future of the uprising hangs in the balance. But things can still turn very quickly. The residents of Banat are far from the only disaffected Christians in the Ottoman realm. So next time, we'll see what happens with the long Turkish war, new uprisings against the Ottomans, and the re-entry of some very important Bulgarians onto the historical stage. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, like the Facebook page, consider donating, you know what to do. Just get involved if you can. We'd really appreciate it. And in the meantime, well, we'll catch you in the next one.